A reading from Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The word of the Lord. Praying our deliverance. It sounds like a very hopeful and promising message, doesn't it? Sounds nice at Christmas. Sounds great at New Year as we hopefully move out of this last year that's been marked by political strife and contention and seems like such a divisive time. And maybe we look at our own lives and see um, the wreckage of bad choices. We see a year that's been marked maybe by job loss, maybe by sickness, and we long for deliverance. But that's not quite what the psalm said, is it? As we read it a few moments ago, that we have this promise of deliverance from our circumstances and the promise of this beautiful new year that's coming that we can walk into with great expectation. Not exactly. Let me tell you a little bit, little story from the early days of the United States, or at least the, what was then becoming the United States. The first English pilgrims, when they came over from, well, their English came over from England, they were able to establish relatively peaceful relations with the Native Americans that they met, with the indigenous people. But that soon changed, and the next generation was marked by almost continuous bloody conflict. And this was evidenced by a largely forgotten battle, King Philip's War, and it began in 1675 and lasted for 14 months. And it was devastating, losses on both the English side uh, as well as in, on the Native American side. And one battle was memorable, however, not for the number of casualties, but for the lack of significant numbers of casualties. A group of 1,500 Native Americans attacked the English settlement of Rehoboth, and we know from history that they were um, antagonized and provoked. And written by Nathaniel Philbrick, and he, as he describes in his book Mayflower, he describes this occurrence of 40 houses burned to the ground, 30 barns, and two mills all just torched. So pretty much the entire city is now in rubble, or the entire village. But in all of that mayhem, only one person died. One person. And it was curiously a man who believed that as long as he continued to read his Bible, that no harm would come to him. And so as the fires are raging and the bullets are being shot, he sat quietly in his chair at home reading his Bible to insulate himself from harm. And he refused to abandon his home during this entire melee. 
and he was found shot to death in his chair with an open Bible still in his hands. Wait a minute, what, what kind of story is that for a sermon? What kind of story is that for Christmas, for the beginning of the new year? Shouldn't it be the reverse? Isn't that what we're talking about here in the church, that you believe these certain things, you pray this formulaic prayer, and that life is going to go reasonably well for you? Well, that's what he believed. And he read his Bible faithfully, and he was shot to death. It's not the kind of uplifting story that we want to begin the new year, but it's the kind of story that the Psalms tell, and in fact, the kind of story that the Bible tells, that these prayers that we've been reading in the Psalms are prayers in the midst of heartache. They're in the midst of violent opposition. They're prayers that happen when they realize that knowing God doesn't immunize them from heartache and destruction and suffering. The Psalms are the poetry of desperate souls. They're the poetry of desperate souls who are trying to hold on to God in the midst of utter desperation and a sense of His absence. Psalm 40, you see, doesn't present God. It certainly doesn't present the Bible as we've come to know it as sort of a magical totem that if we just hold on to it, if we believe the right things, that life is going to go well and that God, for people that follow Him, acts as some sort of divine bodyguard that insulates you from everyone that might want to hurt you and everything. It doesn't hold out God in that way as a totem, but it does offer hope. It does give perspective. It does help us to chart our way through mayhem and through heartache. It does describe a posture of life that recognizes God in the midst of pain, in the midst of a life that might be falling apart, being able to cling to Him and know that He is there despite the way that life is currently going. And if you we're paying attention as the psalm was read. There's 10 or 11 verses that are just full of effusive worship. The writer, likely David, is just falling all over himself to talk about God's faithfulness and how He has been with him through his whole life. And then we get to verse 12, and it feels very disjointed. It offers this surprising contrast to what's gone before. For troubles without number, they surround me, and my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart fails within me. The psalmist, or David, is absolutely overwhelmed. And he's describing here a life that's not just punctuated by grief and trouble, that he looks back upon a relatively normal life that's gone pretty well for him, but that grief and trouble and anguish have become a daily normal reality. And his emotional and his spiritual resources are completely depleted at this stage of life, as probably any of ours would be as well. And this isn't some bystander to God's work. It's not some 
8-bit character. This is the king of Israel. This is supposed to be God's representative on earth. If anyone should have God's blessing and protection, shouldn't it be his king, his regent? And yet he is surrounded by troubles without number. If you read these Psalms, if you read Psalm 40, if you read through the Bible, you, you find that the times where God's people are living large, where they are possessing the thing that they're hoping for, is actually quite rare. It doesn't happen all that often. Just as Israel ascends to this kingship that David is over, within just a generation, it devolves into chaos and division. At the center of the story, throughout the Bible, instead of powerful kings who hold sway over regions, who occupy halls of power, we have the story of widows and we have the story of orphans. We have the stories of refugees, of landless people, who those who forever seem to be on the march somewhere and never finally and fully arriving, never possessing the hope that they long for or the thing that the hope points for. These are stories of people in want, in deprivation. They're isolated from power. And this is apparently the norm if we read the Bible. And then this promised hope for Messiah arrives. Jesus comes and He's embraced not by the powerful, not by the elite, not by the landed class, but by the oppressed classes. He's embraced by the exploited and the poor and the weak and the sick and the lame. These are the people that Jesus' message appeals to and seem to be magnetized by Him. And what it seems to be saying to us is that not that these people were more worthy, but that their situation, their station in life made them more ready. It made them more ready to receive what is described as salvation, as rescue. Because the longer we live, you see, in a comfortable station of life, the longer we live in the upper middle class, the longer we live with power, the longer we live with the means to acquire the things that we want, the harder it is to recognize Jesus coming in moments of grief and moments of sadness. The harder it is to see God in the oppressed and to see God in the orphan and the widow and the refugee. If the message of the Bible ultimately is one of rescue, of one of salvation, then it would make sense that those who are in acute need those who are persecuted, the cast out and the cast off, they they would be the first to see it. They would recognize it. Now, friends, boys and girls, this is where it gets difficult. This is where we try to reach into these stories and don't leave them back there, but we try to embody them and try to live in a way that reflects those stories. And what might that mean? For us, presently, if Jesus is the messenger, the the bringer of salvation, and even He is born into hardship, even He is born into a stable 
He's born hunted by the king. He's born into a life where he will experience poverty and knowing life as a refugee all on the way to crucifixion. Then what does that suggest about how we are to come to know him? What does that suggest about how we are to come to experience the salvation he offers, to recognize it when it's offered? Well, David draws this picture for us that's kind of foreshadowing, and it points to the way that Jesus talks about coming to know God and how he's offered. He says in verse 2 that he lifted me out of the slimy pit, that is God, out of the mud and the mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Remember, friends, this is in the midst of this chaos that's going on, this life that he's reflected upon that hasn't gone how he expected it would, a life of division, a life of conflict, a life of opposition. And yet, he says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. He's talking here about falling into a cistern, and if you were to walk around in the Middle East at this time period, you would need to be on the lookout for a number of things, not just snakes and rams or whatever, with wolves maybe, but uh, I don't imagine rams are so aggressive. That just popped into my head, but wolves is probably what I was looking for. But the other thing you need to be looking out for is these abandoned cisterns that maybe had been covered over or maybe just weren't all that obvious because if you fell in, they had slippery walls, you know, because moss and grime and so forth has grown. And there's mud at the bottom because water seeps in and it stays. And so If you're wandering along and you're not paying attention, you know, checking your text or something, and you fall in, you're pretty much a goner. You're not getting out unless someone rescues you. And if your enemies were particularly cruel, they wouldn't just kind of off with your head. They would just throw you in a nearby cistern or a well and let you die slowly. And this was a common fear in this time frame. This type of desperate situation that all of the readers would have recognized was meant to be a common, was used as a common image to depict sort of the general human predicament. That is our stuckness in life, our stuckness inside of a a dying body, inside of a, a dying world. But that's what this idea of being stuck at the bottom of a cistern unable to rescue yourself, that that depicts the human condition. You see, not only are pain and stress and difficulty and loss, are they common to our human predicament, but these things can be a means of divine communication. They can be a means of telling us what the world is actually like And it can be a means of helping us to recognize the offer of salvation, to recognize the path of spirituality that leads to hope and to ultimate liberation. These things, being stuck in a well, they can be a means of divine speech. Now, we need to be 
careful here because, of course, this can be radically overstated in our sort of rational Western brains. We want to resolve all tension. We want to believe kind of the either or. But we're meant to live in this tension that these hardships can be divine speech, a way that God communicates with us and makes us aware of our human predicament, of our stuckness. One thing that the psalm seems to be saying is that in some sense, we are meant to learn this spiritual discipline of saying that what comes to me is for me, that what I encounter is in some way a means through which God communicates to me and invites me into His presence. And so not only are painful, unpleasant circumstances inevitable in dying bodies and in a dying world, but that God uses them to cultivate this sense of need, this sense of openness to Him. And that it's only, it's only those who see life as sort of a spiritual cistern that this biblical hope makes sense, that this offer of salvation can be received. In a strange sort of counterintuitive way, you see heaven, as a metaphor, heaven can sometimes only be seen in the midst of what we perceive to be a personal hell, that we can only see the grandeur of hope, the offer of salvation, what eternal hope might look like in the midst of loss. Now, in, the, in no way, and here's the tension, is this meant to suggest that we are to live in sort of sublime resignation to the way things are, to the painful events in our lives, that, that spiritual maturity is, a, is sort of a, a spiritual stoicism, that we're just meant to keep the stiff upper lip, as it were, as we go through difficulty, and that that should be our spiritual counsel to someone else. Well, just imagine what God is doing in your life. Just imagine the maturity that He's cultivating in your life as your life spirals out of control. It's not comforting, is it? And that's not the message that I think we're getting here. We certainly shouldn't think of every single hardship as a direct intervention of God to deal with a specific issue of spiritual immaturity in our lives. And we shouldn't see everything that we encounter that's hard as because we've somehow blown it, that God is punishing us because of our sin. That is not the message of the Bible. Death and injustice and heartache, you see, these things are always intruders in God's world. These are not the way things are supposed to be. And so we shouldn't respond to them with sort of a sublime resignation, but we should oppose them. We should find ways to root them out in our lives and lives of others and in our city. David prays in verse 13, be pleased to save me. Come quickly. In verse 17, you are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay And what he's asking for there is a change of circumstances, tangible deliverance from what is going on in his life. 
But throughout this psalm, you also see that he's straining to see God in the midst of what is going on, in the midst of the heartache that he's experiencing, that he's longing to find God and find a sense of himself and where he is in this journey of life, in the midst of his desperation, not simply being removed from it. And we see, I think, this spiritual posture that is described where we aren't simply trying to find a solution to life's challenges, but we are trying to find God in the middle of them. And then in some way, we can have this posture of saying, what comes to me is for me. What comes to you this week is in some way a means of God's communication to you. And we are to ask, what is he saying? What am I missing? What is my response to these circumstances? Tell me about the health of my soul and about where my hope lies. And so our prayer doesn't simply become change my circumstances, although David tells us that that's clearly a viable prayer that God honors and receives. But it can't stop simply at change my circumstances, but instead, God, change me through them. Help me to be able to praise you and find you in the midst of challenging things. In the fall of 2010, billions of people around the globe tuned into the, either their TV or their computer to watch this ongoing story of the Chilean miners who were stranded after, uh, their, uh, after a tunnel collapse, and they're trapped beneath 2,000 feet of solid rock, and it left them utterly lost, utterly dependent upon help from above, as it were. They ate spoonfuls of proteins and little tiny sips of milk and a few nibbles of fruit. Every other day, they were given this allotment for two months in darkness and in hunger and near starvation, not knowing and probably thinking they're not going to survive. And on the surface, this rescue team concocted this crazy idea to drill straight through this solid rock and to develop this capsule basically overnight to send down to rescue them, to get these stranded miners. And something like that would have normally taken years, not only to plan, but to implement and to drill. They did it in two months. And so on October 13th of 2010, these men began to emerge out of this capsule out of being in darkness and being just reserved to death. A great-grandfather comes out, a 44-year-old man who was engaged to be married comes out to find his uh, fiancée, and then a 19-year-old, a boy, comes out. And all of them had different stories and different reasons to celebrate, now being back alive, as it were. But they had all made the same conclusion and the same decision. They trusted someone else to rescue them. They knew that they're not getting out of 2,000 feet of rock. They had stared at this 
stone tomb long enough to reach this unanimous opinion that we need help. We need someone to penetrate this world from outside of it to help us get out. And so when that rescue capsule came, they climbed in for this still dangerous journey to the top. David says in verse 2, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of this place that you cannot extricate yourself from yourself. He brought me out of the mud and the mire and set my feet on the rock. See, friends, becoming a Christian, following Jesus is less like adopting a new moral code to live by, a new set of behaviors, and more like recognizing our own lostness, recognizing our own stuckness inside of bodies that are dying, walking on a world that will eventually die. And through that, coming to rest, coming to actively rest in God's intervening care and in His rescue. The title of this sermon was Praying Our Deliverance. And it doesn't always come as it did for these Chilean miners. It doesn't always come in the acute circumstances of life. We can pray for these things, of course. But if you're praying semi-regularly at all, it stands to reason that if you're praying for deliverance for yourself and your circumstances and for others, that our success rate is not going to be all that high. But you see, data can tell us one thing when we're zoomed in, when we're focused on one variable or one set, but it tells us something very different when we look out, when we zoom out. And multiple data sets can tell us, can give us, if we have the perspective of training and time to look at them, we begin to see patterns. We begin to see principles at work that produce these data sets. And as the writers look back on Israel's story, it was a difficult one, one of long periods of hardship. These big promises looked distant, and they seemed dislocated from the daily experience of life. And as they zoomed in on what was going on in their daily circumstances, they grumbled, and they wanted to go back to Egypt, even after being rescued from slavery. When they were wandering the desert and hungry, Egypt looked attractive. But you see, the Bible is a big book, and it has a lot of stories, and it gives perspective over thousands of years rather than just one particular incident. And the story that it's telling is a story of waiting. And that's been our task, hasn't it, during this time of Advent? The Old Testament is a story of enslavement and exile and hardship and setback setback and wandering and then of silence. Hundreds of years, in fact, of silence. And then Messiah comes. And then Jesus comes to bring deliverance. You see, we don't always see deliverance at the granular level. We don't always see it in each and every moment in our individual lives that are intruded upon by grief. But if we read the entire story, if we read it to the end, 
we see that at times God doesn't intervene in the intruding grief in our momentary lives, but that He intrudes to end grief as a, as a whole. That He intrudes in our dying world to end death itself. When we pull back and we see the perspective of the whole story that the Bible is writing, we see in Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection, we see counterfactual hope. We see the world beginning to turn backwards, to turn into something that it once was that is beautiful and that is everlasting, where beauty never ceases and where every tear is finally wiped away and dry. He comes to put an end to death itself and to heal a world that's marked by death. And friends, that's our hope in the new year. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that even though our hope seems like it might be far away, that we could personalize it, that we could make it tangible, that we could find ways this week, today, to live with hope in the midst of circumstances that may be difficult and may be trying, that we don't have a promise or even a light at the end of the tunnel, that things will change in the coming days or weeks. And yet, Father, help us strain through them to have the perspective of the larger data set that you give us hope in the midst of our world, in the midst of wherever we are and whatever we're going through, that Jesus chooses to sit with us. So, Jesus, would you come again to us individually and to us as a community? And we pray in your name. Amen.